and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, we are going to be discussing the 1983 film, The Dead Zone. Dun dun dun. It's not about what you think it's about. What, what I think it was about? I don't know. Uh, zombies? Well, no. With a title like that, you'd expect it to be... How was your week? My week was actually really good. I, uh, I had been waiting for a very long time to see a particular film, which I will discuss later. And I got to see it, and it was just as rewarding as I was hoping it would be. Are you going to talk about it next week, too, because you're going to watch it again? Um, possibly, yes. <laughs> cool. At least once before then. How, how was your week? It was good. Busy, mm-hmm. but good. I got to see Friends. That's uh-huh. always nice. Oh, good. That's good. Friends is good. And you've been working on another podcast. So much working on the other podcast. Oh. My whole weekend was given over to the other podcast. But now we're doing this podcast. Yes, we are. So, let's talk about The Dead Zone. Released in 1983, starring Christopher Walken before he was hired to be Christopher Walken, and directed by David Cronenberg, a director that I have mixed feelings about. So... Broadly, we'll do a quick plot synopsis. Synopsis, as they say in French. Synopsis. Synopsis. Mise en scène, synopsis, fromage. fromage. We do real broad strokes. Uh huh. A school teacher gets in a car accident, Mm -hmm. awakens from a coma several years after that accident. He now has psychic abilities, and then he uses them for good. The end. <laughs> See you next week, everybody. Apologies for my voice this week. I don't know what's going on with it. Pollen. I say pollen. Mm, I think pollen. I'm just, I think I was talking too much. Okay. So this movie stars a very young Christopher Walken playing a very old John Smith. Yes, the main character in this book and movie is named John Smith. But we know him as Johnny. And he has very bad hair at the beginning of this movie. It's very bad. And then it gets better. But then by the end, I hate it again. So that's my hair journey. What what did you (laughs) feel about the film as a whole? Mm, I liked it. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be longer, and that might stem from the fact that I did watch the television show that was yeah. several seasons long and did include this main character, I mean, this main story arc over those several seasons. Mm-hmm. So a movie is going to feel rushed on that front. Right. So we start, and Johnny, in the book, he's only been out of school a year, along with Sarah. So he's so 23. He's very, very young. And he's still, he's a school teacher. A school teacher okay. still. So yes, out of out of school and back teaching, both he and Sarah uh, are twenty three when the book that starts. That makes a lot more sense then. I think. I think that's right. Because given what happens with the them, in film, he's a man who's waiting for marriage to consummate his relationship with his girlfriend. Yes, and that seemed it at, seems old fashioned when he seems like a thirty something year old man. Right. It because does. at the making of this film. Uh huh. Oh, let's see. Chris Walken, how old were you? So he was born in 1943, so he's 40 when this movie comes out. Yeah. He's playing a 23-year-old well, man. Well, to his credit, he actually doesn't look his age. He doesn't. Um, but I would say that he does look in his 30s. He does 30s. Look like he's in his 20s. No. Yeah, and, and so the, the scene where he, he uh, after having a fun day with his girlfriend, and there's a, 
intimation that his uh, powers are latent and they're somehow kicked into action by his accident? By the coma, yes. In the book, Mm -hmm. um, and this also happens on the television show, when he's a child, he falls on the ice and hits his head. Okay. And that does something to his brain, and then this coma shifts whatever that was into sort of overdrive. Knocks things into place. Yes. We're in Castle Rock, because of course we are. Right. And, uh, yes, he loves his girlfriend, but they are not going to have sex until they are married. Now, this could be because he has, um, and I'm not sure how we're supposed to take his mom. His mother is... Highly religious. Yes, but I'm wondering on the scale of religiosity between... um, Is she a Carrie's mom? I don't think so. You know, one of the more casual religious characters that you'll find in other Stephen King stories. I think that that's where she's supposed to... She's supposed to be sort of fanatical on her own, Mm -hmm. but not abusive. See, yeah. I think is... So she's a strict... Mom. Strict, but I think more strict on herself right. and her household yes. than strict on the son. I, we don't get any yeah. indications that he was... Yeah. Uh, Judging purely yeah. from the film, she doesn't seem to be externalizing her religious beliefs mm-hmm. and abusing other people with Mm-mm. them. Um, no, and I don't think it's so in the book either. All right. But here, it's she just seems to be a very strict and very proper woman and because the husband doesn't show any signs of sort of being... No, that's the other thing. The husband uh, clearly is going to go to church when he t- she tells him to go to church, mm-hmm. but he is not a completely pious right. individual Well, it's the impression well. that you get, and also you get the sense that... But he loves his wife. Johnny's brought up in these same kind of values. Mm-hmm. So he's... His uh, re- refusal of his girlfriend was not based on his religiosity as much as it is based on his um, his kind of feeling that he's you know holding onto these values, showing her value by waiting for marriage. Right, and in the book, um, the time is earlier. So in the book, John Smith is born in 1947. Mm-hmm. And so that this takes place in the mid seventies, forty seven, fifty seven, sixty seven. Yes. So the accident takes place in like nineteen seventy. So we've pushed this up so that it's contemporaneous with the movie, but uh-huh. even a decade or twelve years will change mores, I think, accordingly. But he is, so he's a little bit old-fashioned in his handlings of his lady friend, Sarah, who was played by Brooke Adams and is so beautiful. She was... She's 80% mouth. Right. She just has a very broad smile. What were you going to say about her? Um, She did a lot of stuff. I remember her. And she bears a really... Okay. My introduction to Brooke Adams was in a very trashy TV soap called Lace. Okay. Where she's one of three schoolgirls who gets pregnant when they're studying in Europe, and one of them has a child, and the child's Phoebe Cates. Uh, the child's Phoebe Cates? Yes. Okay, I'm confused. And uh, the child grows up to become Phoebe Cates, who's a porn star. Oh, jeez. And so uh, the the the... 
the porn star then finds out that one of these three schoolgirls abandoned her that were close friends. One of them got pregnant, and she's now going to hunt that person down and find out who it is. And but yeah, that that was the her big television part. She did things like uh, she'd worked with Terrence Malick before that. She'd worked with Philip Kaufman before that. So Philip Kaufman. Oh yeah, the what director. Do I know that he voice did uh, the right stuff. Oh okay. Yes, but yes. he also did an version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and she was very good in it with Donald Sutherland. Interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah, she felt familiar to me, but I don't mm-hmm. think I'd seen many things with her in it. Um, and she's in the whole of the movie. Tom Skerritt plays a sheriff, because Tom Skerritt always plays a sheriff. Does he play a sheriff in this? He does, right? Yes, he does. Yeah, he does. <laughs> okay. I'm like, I'm I got remembering mostly the hat. But he, yes, the that's right. The most convincing. So he... Ends up in a in this bad accident and is in a coma for four years, four and a half years. And upon waking, he finds the world has moved on. Uh, has his mother already passed? No. No. She okay. passes um, after he wakes. Of course, the film, because she does visit him in the hospital. That's right. So, but, but Sarah has married and had a baby in mm-hmm. the meantime. She has moved on. Because apparently there was no idea to know that he would ever wake up. And right. she was a 23-year-old woman. So I can't. we can't blame her. He does not blame her. He is sad, but he does not blame her. And he finds that when he touches people, he sees uh, all kinds of things. It's unclear. It's, there's no sort of rhyme or reason to what he sees. Sometimes it's stuff that's going to happen like... In well, an hour? Yeah. Sometimes it's stuff that's literally happening right now. And actually, we do actually get... The first thing he sees is a fire that is happening as they speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, he touches the nurse and her do- he sees her daughter in their house. And the house is engulfed in flames. And fortunately, she listens to him and gets the daughter out. Uh, and then... Slightly later, he touches somebody and sees something that's maybe two hours in the future. Well, and she, then later, he touches somebody and sees something that is years into the future. So he gets hit by the milk truck, right? He's in the coma for five years. Yes. He comes out, and his the variety, as I understand it, is that he sees what's happened both in the past and in the present and in the future. Right, but there's sort uh, of no... Rhyme or reason? Oh, that's right, because he touches his doctor. And the doctor has a he has a vision of a family escaping the Nazis. Yes, or not escaping, as the case may be. The boy mm-hmm. escapes, but the mother does not. Right. The boy is his doctor, who is a full-grown adult male, played by Herbert Lom, who's got the best voice. Yes, and should read all of the things. He's probably deceased now. It's a real bummer. And he. Uh, says your mom's still alive, mm-hmm. and this is where she is. So, But we don't see that part of the vision. Like, sh- he knows a phone number, which is right. bananas. <laughs> like, how long was this vision that he got? Well, he, he gets the idea, he knows where she lives, so he gets some oh, sort of information right. from that, and then uh, the doctor, Herbert Lom's character, looks her up in the phone book. And calls her, but cannot calls, speak to and her. And can't bring himself to speak. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of not speaking on phones in this movie. There is a lot enough. of people dialing a phone, usually like a, mm-hmm. well, not usually, but often a payphone. Right. 
so that there's no, you know, and there's no color ID in 1983, I guess. But, um, yeah, people calling and then just being creepily silent right. <laughs> and not finishing their, their call. Uh, so he sees, so that gets his doctor on his side. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take much. I don't know if doctors were just more flexible of mind well, but in I think 1983. That if you actually come up with as detailed a vision as he did. That's true. And make it as personal as, as uh, Johnny did for his doctor. Of course that's going to convince him because there was absolutely no chance to the doctor's mind that his mother escaped. Right. But she did, and he was able to make that connection. And back together with the prediction that the, uh, or rather not prediction, but the awareness the that wearing. the nurse's house is burning down. And that right. was really done in such a strange way. Um, the visions are handled in, in really odd and creative ways in this film. They are. The fire is handled as if the fire is happening in the room around him. Yes. It includes one really creepy detail, watching uh, a fish tank boiling over and the fish going belly up. Yeah, that is I don't think it's hot. actually possible. I don't know. I think it's possible, but I think the house would... I don't think at that point that mm. little girl's making it out. <laughs> right. And so he sees the fire around him, and I'm curious to see how much of that actually... It looked like a practical effect where yeah. Christopher Walken was on fire. Mm. It might not have been. I don't think it um, was. But, yeah, there's an odd variety to his visions. They're very well staged. But, again, we're remembering this is a David Cronenberg movie. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, so, sort of, word spreads far and wide that mm-hmm. he is a seer. Um, he does a, what's it called? A, uh, like a press conference. Press conference, which, don't do that. And, I mean, I guess, he got a, he should have gone on Donahue or Sally Jesse. Was she doing a show yet? No, I don't think so. Too early? Yeah. Uh, and this this obnoxious reporter is like, you're fake, do me, do me, do me, do it on demand. Which we don't know if there's an on demand or not. Right. Uh, but it only happens when he touches you. Uh, and then he says something, he do, finally like... Says so something that is He's, really weirdly suggestive. Yeah, I can't even remember what do, it was, but it was like... Do you want to know why your sister committed suicide? Oh, was that what it was? And I I don't know what that was about, My but... The sense was your dad was a real dick. Either, or, or he was a real <laughs> or dick. Or that. You know, yeah, but it was something where it was panics, like... The reporter panics when he hears that, yeah. so I think it might have to do more with him than dad. But, um, but he gets called a freak, too. Yeah. Yes, so this reporter goes from prove it, prove it, prove it to you're a fucking freak, you know? Right. <laughs> and I'm just like, dude, okay, you were not cut out for this particular <laughs> press conference. You're bad at your job and you're bad. Oh, I do need to talk a little bit about Chris Watkins' hair. So, Uh-oh. okay, here we go. Before the accident, he it is um, Harry Potter-esque. He's got Flat bangs mm-hmm. and like just a round cut bangs though laying down. And after the accident, his hair is brushed back from his forehead, which is a happens. little bit longer. And it appears that the intent is this is what a coma does to you. <laughs> I don't well, I think know. I, I, I think that the um, the first haircut also is he a symbol, doesn't wear glasses anymore. <laughs> is a symbol of like um. Repression, like he's sexually repressed. He has a bowl cut, essentially. But it's also, I think, supposed to make him look younger. I it don't know that it does. It just makes him look creepier. It's like his hair got feathered in a coma, and now yeah. that's what we're it's doing. It's very feathered. It's very, yeah. 
And I was like, oh, his hair looks so much better. And then by the end of the movie, I was like, oh, I don't like his hair anymore. And then <laughs> it he, didn't uh, change. he tricks out his, the collar of his coat, so he kind of looks like a very... Um, he looks like a bat. He yeah, looks he like looks a vampire. Like, yeah, he looks like a vampire. I think that's the best way to put it. He looks like um, he's doing his impression of Frank Langella's Dracula. But, uh, but yeah, the uh, I think the next major plot twist is... Because oh, it's very episodic. Yes, it is. So the next thing that happens is he foils a serial killer. Mm-hmm. So there's a serial killer in Castle Rock. Because, of course, there it's is. We're off the 27-year mark, though. I don't think... I don't think... I don't think it's... How much of this was thought of ahead of time? I mean, when he began to sort of integrate this entire universe, was he consciously thinking of it when he was writing, like, does this fit in here? I don't... I would guess that he would piece things together by years as mm-hmm. he was writing, but I don't think it became concrete thought until probably the Dark Tower series. Uh-huh. I could be wrong about that. Um, I will do some research because and get back to you. With the Dark Tower, he also, didn't he go back and re-edit the first couple of books so that there was a consistency to everything that he was writing? Yes, later. Okay. As, as it became not a trilogy. Uh-huh. When he was going on in the fifth and sixth and seventh books, right? Uh, yeah, he did. Um, and but I don't think he changed details as much as added. But I could mm-hmm. be wrong about that as well. I've never read any of the edited anything. I've okay. never read the edited stand, and I've never read the edited. Now the edited stand had material added back to it, right? I believe so. Okay. Yes, which is. It's like a director's cut of a movie. Like, y'all edit this out for a reason, right? (laughs) You don't need to put the scenes that were on the cutting room floor back in because it probably isn't the scenes that you needed to Mm -hmm. have in there in the first place. That's, (laughs) I'm wondering how often I should agree with that. I think half of the time that's true. You think half the time? I think it's probably more than half the time. I I mean, every once in a while, I'll watch a movie and I'll be like, "Um, if you cut, my sense is, the thing that makes this X, Y, and Z make sense, uh-huh. if it's not in the movie, right. it's not because they willy-nilly cut a scene. It's because that scene didn't ever exist. Like, they right. skipped a thing. I'm thinking right now of Donnie Darko. Oh, no, don't do that. And there's a whole story arc that was cut out of the theatrical release of the film. There's more than that. The you people... know, I mean, the, the story arc between the boy of um, Jake Gyllenhaal and... I'm trying to remember her name, the actress who played his girlfriend. Um, did he even have a girlfriend in that movie? Yeah, he did, and that was it. The theatrical cut makes it seem as if, um, if I remember correctly, they fall in love, but they're very wary of each other, and they finally get together at a party. And when I watch the deleted scenes for that uh, that version of the film, there's a whole story arc where they become boyfriend and girlfriend, have a relationship, and then break up, and then get back together again at the party. So... Everything involving that scene got cut out, and so a lot of... um, Well, you've got to also keep in mind that the actors in Donnie Darko saw mm -hmm. Donnie Darko and went, this is not the movie Mm -hmm. that I had a script for at all. So it wasn't just a storyline got cut. He filmed a bunch of shit and then put together a totally different movie. What I mean to say is that there's a character arc there that would help the story make a lot more sense. And so I think sometimes Mm -hmm. it... I don't know that his... It gets cut for time, it gets cut for content, and producers can interfere with 
what the director's trying to do. I think both versions are actually very good, but one of them made more sense. Um, I don't know that Gretchen being it was Jenna Malone. Oh, um, not Jenna Malone. I don't. I don't even know. I remember Seth Rogen being in that movie. I neither do I. Um, actually, uh, maybe I didn't know who he was at the time. The I don't know that a girlfriend aspect makes any of that make any more sense. Uh, yeah, no, that movie is bananas. When you hear the people mm-hmm. that were in the movie talk about Don it, Darko, right? Mm-hmm. You're not thinking of also Southland, Southland Tales. And, he right. did the same thing for Southland Tales, right. but no, the adults in Donnie Darko specifically, mm-hmm. the teachers and whatnot, they were like, "This is not the. This is nowhere near the script that we right. got for the full movie." So when I saw it, it was a complete shock to me because this is not the film mm-hmm. that I was I signed on to be in, right. which is pretty wild. But I don't even know how that's practical at all. But I suppose that's I why he's not making that, very many movies. Yeah, practical is his uh, his bread and butter here. So somebody suggested one of the things that we could do was a minute by minute. Have you heard of podcasts that watch a thing minute by minute? They literally watch one minute of sh- of the movie and then they go deep dive into that minute uh-huh. to do that with Southland Tales. That sounds like it would be really unrewarding. I I feel like you have to have an in. I feel like to do that you have to have somebody who was working on the film. Right. Because our thoughts minute by minute isn't going to do it because there's yeah. so much randomness going well, in the background. Oh, you know who, you, who should do that? Uh, Kevin Smith should do that. Kevin Smith's in it. Right. And he described having all sorts of hard times trying to yes. perform in the film because his character kept getting changed. I yes. remember that much. Yeah. But yeah, I just that was a disappointing film because I really thought there were big things coming from this director because his first film is such a... Well, yeah, he... Uh, and then he did this horrible adaptation of the box, which made no sense whatsoever. No reason for that. That was a, that whole thing didn't need to be. Right. Yeah. I forgot that was him. Yeah. He shouldn't be doing adaptations of other people's things. Well, because... Like, he's too right. in he, his own head. He took a really... Tight, well-written story. Thirty minutes cover. Well, it was done for the new Twilight Zone. I know thirty minutes as a thirty-minute segment, and then try to get a full-length film out of it, and in the end, added all sorts of science fiction elements and things that didn't make By any sense. By putting any context to that story, mm-hmm. you really detract from that. Well, you story. destroy the mystery of the story. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm and saying. And that's what the story is about: mystery. It's not about having the certainty of, oh, where does the box come from. Much less his whole sort of fascination with interdimensional beings. Also, the idea of seeing what happens when you make your choice—like, no, the whole thing is you don't get to know right. what happened. Like, what is happening right now? Okay, well, let's get back to the dead zone. The okay. dead zone. So, we're talking about the serial killer. Serial killer. Mm-hmm. So the sheriff, who is Tom the Scarrett. aforementioned Tom Skerritt, uh, he enlists help because he's like well clearly this dude knows something right. and we've got right. bodies so we need to do something about it and obviously a small time sheriff does not have the wherewithal to deal with the serial killer especially when dun 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 the serial killer is a policeman now, a policeman two really strange things that happen in this story arc which is that Colleen Dewhurst the amazing Colleen Dewhurst shows up in for one possibly scene. <laughs> 
Five minutes or less it's altogether less. in the entire film. I'm going to say she's in it for a grand total of two two minutes and 55 right. seconds. So it's very strange that you have an actress of that stature appear in the film, which makes me think that something was cut out. But I was stoked because I was right. like, ooh, Colleen Dewhurst, I love her. And then I was like, well, she's dead, so she's yeah. not coming back. That seems a waste. It feels like, was she married to somebody who was working on the thing or something like that? I don't know. I, I'm not sure exactly what the, the reasoning was behind having her in the film for such a short part. I mean, it was a it was a part that needed something. Yeah, it needed someone with some stature to it. And she, of course, as always, brings stature to a part. But it just seems odd. I'm going to cast her in this tiny part. Yeah. But this is also, I felt, the only segment of the film that really feels like David Cronenberg. Yeah, the serial it does. killer in the film. Because, and I'll, I'll harken back to some of the other strange things he's done. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with him, David Cronenberg is a Canadian director uh, whose speciality is body horror. Body horror. So he does films... Um, which is why I got this movie confused with the dark half. Uh -huh. And when we get to the dark half, you'll all see why. Because <laughs> I was, was like, oh, Romero that film. makes sense for the d body yeah. horror. But then I was like, oh, shit, that's not this movie. Yeah, David Cronenberg has a real fascination. He's, um, he doesn't have any belief in the supernatural or the otherworldly at all. He admits this. So his sort of idea of heaven and hell are contained within what happens in a human's experience in their lifetime... So there's a weird fascination with both sex and violence. Yeah. So his... Um, Sometimes both of them at the same time. His earlier stuff is more body horror-y. Mm -hmm. um, Videodrome, Scanners, The Brood, um, The Fly. Right. That's the, fly the Jeff Goldblum fly. The last one where he really... Although Dead Ringers also explored, which I'm not sure I if would was say afterwards. Dead Ringers was the next one. It uh -huh. was right after The Fly, and I would say that, yeah, that one does too. And then too. he began kind of a different tack to his work. Something like... And Crash. Oh, I didn't think of that one. Uh, not... The one that won the Academy no, Award. Crash the the one that if you get that other one confused with, you will be in for a bad a movie really night. Unpleasant surprise. It's a. Uh, my understanding, and um, this is from a person who has not seen the movie. It's about people who get off from car accidents? From a person who has seen the movie and wishes they hadn't. Oh, good. This is a film about people who are sexually aroused right. by automobile accidents and mutilated bodies crawling out of automobiles. So they stage car accidents and there's... It's a Guess really, who's in it? James Spader. Of course he James is. James Spader. And I forget, Elias... Codius? Codius, who also is Mr. Creep. And um, Holly Hunter and Rosanna Arquette. Rosanna Arquette, who is in, like, she's missing a limp. With or a she's Howard a Shore score. That's yeah. bananas. And she's in bondage gears, I remember, in parts of the film. But James Spader, God bless him for taking this part because it is in no way flattering whatsoever. James Spader does not care how right. he looks in a film. I think he's very comfortable with who he is and understands he gets paid to do whatever the directors right. need. And he will he will do whatever. Right. And his but in this film his You've whole seen part, Secretary, right? Right, is to play a sexually incompetent man who's only aroused by car accidents. Or Ooh, this is the new thing something he Something bad happened to him when he was a child. And uh um, I just got real Freudian all of a right. sudden. <laughs> 
But yeah, so the film is spent with any number of love scenes where he ejaculates too early, except when he's making love to the male leader of the group that stages car accidents. It's just a bizarre film. That is bizarre. But, but later, his Cronenberg's mm. um, work sort of goes away from the stuff right. with history of violence and well, Eastern history promises. of violence also went to sex and violence. I did, but it, it was. But it's not. It's more sociopolitical. Yeah, I think. Um, I remember watching. Uh, shivers and this is a whole film about ambulatory venereal diseases that infect an apartment high rise and so there's scenes that suggest pedophilia and gang rape and this is like I'm going to go ahead and give that one a miss yeah and so it was one of those things where oh and has a cool one time of a cool 87 minutes that's probably well, long because enough. you can't take that too, nope. too much of it I'm going to um, go ahead and give it a miss but that film in particular there's nothing involving about the movie. Rabid, the film he did where, uh, with Marilyn Chambers, the former porn star Marilyn Chambers, uh, where she has some sort of a skin graft that creates a phallic syringe that lives under her armpit, and she becomes this odd sort of sexual vampire. I don't like any of this. It's making my stomach hurt. Can we yeah, stop talking about David Cronenberg now? <sighs> that film also was, it's very detached. You don't feel anything personal happening. And that was a big failure with his early films, is that you don't really care what happens to these people. Because they've, they're put in such wild, mm-hmm. unrelatable... Predicaments. Predicaments. Right? And so I... The, and then act in mm, bananas really, ways right. that you're like, well, even if I was put in this bizarre predicament, right. as a human being, this is not how I would respond to well, it. And the reason why I bring up Rabbit in particular... Marilyn Chambers is undressed through most of the movie and it never feels sexual, even though this is a woman who's, you know, was a porn star. Um, the scenes in his other films never feel sexual. They feel almost like ritualistic in a way. You're watching somebody carrying out an act that isn't stimulating for them in any way. Uh-huh. It felt like that in these scenes with a serial killer. He seduces his victims, he stabs them with the scissors, and then when he's caught, he goes over to his house, and does this strange thing where he sheds all of his clothes. He's in the bathtub. I he, think it's for ease of cleanup. Yeah, he fixes, maybe for his mom, like his mother's involved with this somehow yeah. because she's protecting him. Yes. And then he fixes these scissors to the edge of the bathtub and begins this sort of like bowing ritual. It was, that felt very David Cronenberg. Oh, okay. Like that was the only point in the film where I felt like. I thought it was going to be a quick mm-hmm. jab. Like I thought he was going to uh, like bash his head into the scissors, mm-hmm. into the points. But it's not, it's a slow no, burn. No, it involves his open mouth, which yeah. is even stranger. Uh, but, well, to maybe get make sure you get into the brain. So he kills himself with scissors in his bathtub. But um, So he's in his house, and uh, his mom answers the door and is like, he's not here. And they're like, he's here. Move aside. I just aside. saw the window. And then, <laughs> I right. like, she's really bad at this. And then um, she like pulls a gun on them. Even though her son has killed himself, so right. I don't know, is it just her guilt and I think, and she also remember, refers to him as the devil, uh, Johnny. Oh, Johnny, that's because right. she really sees this as you're taking my son away from me, and she knows um, perfectly well that her son is a serial killer and he's killed so several people. Seems to me like someone might be the devil here, but I don't. Yeah, I don't think the guy think who you're looking the right way. And she goes so far as to actually shoot Johnny, so he's 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 having a bad time. So that's the end of that. And then at that point, Johnny leaves town. Mm-hmm. He's like, I got to bounce. This is a real bummer. 
Um, well, there's also too many people who know what his abilities are at this point. Yes. And then, oh, let me... I'm trying to think. Before he moves away, he and Sarah consummate their relationship. Which is a really interesting human scene. Right. Like, she comes over with her son. Right. Well, who's a baby. He's 10 months old, so he's going to be fine. This is not any problem with him. And while the baby is napping, she's like, I think we've waited long enough. And then they have sex. Now, this happens off screen. Yes. Which is fine. Right. No, but I mean, (laughs) (laughs) again, David Cronenberg, you can never tell what direction he's going to go in. Um, And then they have a very nice sort of family meal where Mm -hmm. she cooks. For his dad, For his dad and him and uh the baby. And then she leaves and that's it. That's a wrap. That's their relationship. Really neat conversation with him in the end. Where he's asking, will I see you again? And she goes, yes, but not like this. Right. This is what happened. I'm cheating on my husband. Right. And I'm, I'm, fin- I'm closing our door. Right. Our it's door basically. was had a wedge open. Uh-huh. And it's just, or like a like an open window that just has a draft coming into her fucking mm-hmm. house all of the time. And she needs to close that window. And the only way to do that is to close that relationship. And it wasn't Johnny's fault that he wasn't there. Right? right, she has no ill will towards him, and he has no real no no real ill will towards her moving on with her life. It's been five years, right? And she was a twenty three year old woman, so she and can't again, not knowing it at any point because when Johnny's in the hospital, he's visited by his parents. His mother thinks it's a miracle that he's come back. So uh-huh. the what the impression that you get from that the inference is. That the doctors have been telling them this is not going to happen. Right, but he also hasn't been on life support. Right. Um, so he was just in a vegetative state. Right. Uh, rather than being kept alive by machines or anything like that. Um, but yeah, the the chance of waking up is small. Uh, but that closes their relationship, and I actually thought that, that was like a very mature. Right, and that was the sense I got from it too. It was very to mature. Do. It's like the line in Casablanca where the guy knows his wife has been cheating on him while he was in prison, and he's like, "Well, I know what loneliness does to people." Right, and we just won't talk about it. Right, and it was like, "Wow, that was a very I, mature thing to." I feel like if this was filmed now, uh-huh. she may have been able to have that relationship with, or that that conversation with her husband, uh-huh. and saying, "Look." I want to do this. It's it's not me cheating on you, really. Mm-hmm. It's me closing the relation off the relationship that I previously had. Let me do this. Cuz I do think that people are more open to that now. I wonder. I wonder if he would be a, it, of course it depends right. on the husband right. and the wife and the relationship and, and the I don't think this husband would have when we later meet him he's fairly yeah, conservative. Yes. And he seems to have a reaction to seeing Johnny? Yes. Well, I wonder if that's... I, I almost wonder if she did tell him. No, and we just never know. And he just is like, that's still my wife. I know that she didn't go back. Um, but yes, so he moves away. Uh-huh. And he starts tutoring. Or, you know... Tutoring children. Tutoring children. Now, does he change his name or anything? I, I don't think so. With a name like John Smith, do you have to? Right. I think that that might be why his name is John Smith, Mm -hmm. so that he could move to another town. And he's not terribly far away. I mean, he's still in Maine. um, And 
he starts working for a rich dude who knows of his gifts, but knows that he's a teacher. Now, this is Anthony Zerbe, for anybody who's old enough to remember character actors from this period of time who is almost always playing a villain. Because I was going to say, does he usually play like a mob weirdly, boss or somebody yeah, like that? really sinister face, these really arched eyebrows and a widow's His eyebrows are amazing. They're amazing. He had, they used to say in the old days, a face for radio. And so he played it up and played some of the more dastardly villains on television when I was a kid. Yeah, he's a rich, um, and he has a son who's a dumb. He's not dumb, but he may have a learning disability. Mm-hmm. Um, he has trouble with reading. So he gets hired on to be his tutor, and one day they're tutoring, as you do, and um, he goes to say bye to him, and he sees he and a bunch of other kids fall through the ice. Johnny sees. Johnny sees this. Right. Yeah, that's... He's the only person no, who can see a sees thing. He I know. Of, so it was just was ambiguous. He, Johnny sees the kids fall through mm-hmm. ice, and then he was like, I'm going home with you, um, and he gets in the the... The early witch's lift, which is the the limo that Dad right. sends, and goes and like causes a scene, knocks like take he's uh got a cane and a limp mm. through this whole thing, because um, I believe that his um, pelvis is fractured in the in the uh, accident, uh-huh. and you know obviously didn't heal as well as you might like since you can't do physical therapy when you're mm-hmm. unconscious. Uh, so he walks with a limp and a cane, uh, and which is a, his limp is wild in this, but we don't have to go into it. Um, but he like takes his cane and knocks over a vase, and he's like, "Your son's gonna die. Do you want your son to die?" And at this point, the kid's like, uh, "I don't want to go do it." What we should mention <laughs> is that the conflict between the rich guy and his son is that he believes that his son isn't developmentally or isn't moving or developing at the proper pace like he did when he was younger. The son is actually a very intelligent kid, but he just doesn't have a way of connecting with his dad. Right. He doesn't want to play sports. He's maybe a nerdling. Mm -hmm. He's an indoor kid. Right. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. He's an indoor kid. And dad is, dad wants a football or a hockey star and a football player. And he's a guy who also, you get the sense, kind of elbowed people to get wealthy like he was. At one point, and this is important to mention, we meet uh, a politician. Oh, yeah. I was going to talk about that after right. this part. No, go ahead. Um, so the kid has been scared off of playing hockey. The dad agrees he won't do it. But then, of course, as soon as he leaves, he goes up to his kid's room and he's like, let's go. Why don't you have your stuff on? Your friends are here. And he's like, uh, I'm not going. Did Did right. you see? He freaked out. I'm not getting on the ice. I don't want to die today. And his son basically, or his dad basically is like, you're a pussy. And then right. he can like leaves him. And then, of course, two kids fall through the ice and die. Oh, no. But yes, of course they did. And, um, but the boy didn't. And yeah, we're treated to another scene of the dad just sort of sitting in a state of real depression. Yep. Drinking. Which leads to another... Johnny calls, gets the kid, and then hangs up when he hears his voice. He hears his voice. He knows he's okay. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Yes. He calls. Yeah. He's like, let me just double check. There's a lot of calling this and hanging up. This is what we did in the old days. And the, and the kid knows. The kid's like, right. Johnny, I'm fine. Or whatever. Uh, oh, because Johnny sees it in a newspaper. Right, in a newspaper. So, yes. At the, at the very first time we meet Rich Dad, he is entertaining Greg Stilson. 
the Martin Sheen. The big cheese. The big cheese, who is running for Senate. Apparently, he's a third-party candidate. I don't remember that part. Um, And when Johnny shakes his hand, well, we see him at a bunch of different things. They're going to have a rally literally across the the street. You know, he gets introduced at one point at the rich guy's house. But we don't shake a hand then. And he's warned by rich dad, or Johnny is, you have to keep people like that around or you have to make them think that you could be on their side because they're dangerous. Right. Well, and also, it's Mm. not just that they're dangerous. Mm. It's I'm going to give money to all of these guys because whoever's going to win is going to owe me some shit. Right. But I mean, that's the first hint that we have that this guy is more than just a huckster. He's somebody that, that this businessman who you can tell elbowed his way to get to the top, he sees that guy as dangerous. I didn't get that piece. I, I only saw it, I, I, don't, I don't remember him saying he was dangerous. I just remember him going, well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I might not even mm-hmm. like him, but if he wins, I want him in my pocket. Right. No, but he, he specifically says that he thinks the guy's trouble. So oh, okay. that's like the, the, the seed that gets laid in your imagination for later on. Oh, okay. So when you see him just keep popping up in the film. Well, you're seeing his face literally every time Chris Walken mm-hmm. goes outside because yeah. there there's a huge billboard across the street from him. They're going to have a rally like right across from his house. Um, and then he answers his door one day and there's somebody shilling for him. Mm-hmm. He's like, have you heard of Greg Stilson? And he's like, D- what do you think? And he yeah. you know, motions to the giant picture of that dude's face right across the street. And then... Um, he's like, look, I am not feeling well or whatever. Can we not do this right now? And then he goes, oh, sure, hun, just bring me a brochure or whatever. And, of course, it's Sarah. And this is Sarah's husband. So they're working for Stilson. And uh, then is it? I'd like you to mention, though, as we're on the subject, what you observed when you were watching the film with me about Christopher Walken's reading of the word Sarah, name Sarah. The way he he loves her so much, and right. it's all in those two syllables. The way that he says uh-huh. her name every time, which I think might be where her husband is like, I'm sorry, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> like the Chris, We're so used to hearing Christopher Walken sound like Christopher Walken. Right. And... Can we talk about how at the very the opening of this movie is him reading the Raven, which is the right. greatest? I'm like, you didn't even know what you had. <laughs> but he like caresses the name Sarah every time he says it, and it's this subtle thing. Mm-hmm. It's not overt. It's not gross. Right. It's just all this love and longing put into these two syllables. I didn't in the middle of a sentence. Right. His sentence will have normal cadence, and then the way that he says her name is like heartbreaking. It's. Um, I'm gonna I see if I can find a clip. Didn't and, really pay attention to it until you started mentioning it. What it was that I was picking up on, and it was similar to when we did. Uh, you know, I don't have clothes for or I. I don't have clothes for a party. What was the line in Midnight Cowboy? Oh, God, I'm not dressed for a party. <laughs> I'm not dressed for a party. Oh, it was that so same sad. kind of... My heart is broken. <laughs> right. And so when I started paying attention to what exactly it was, when you said the way that... It sort of sounds like... 
and this is this is terribly poetic. I apologize in advance, but no trees. <laughs> it does sound like it's his dying breath that he's saying every time he's spelling yes. every time he says her name. Every time he says her name, it's remarkable acting, right? And it's so subtle. Yeah, that that was it was something. It's just like when I started paying attention to it, it's like, oh God, yeah, that's right. This is what this is the thread that humanizes this film, because we're we're given, and it's something that like. I brought up earlier, you don't get a lot of that in David Cronenberg's work. You don't mm. get a lot of attachment to the characters. No, I really don't even know if this was a directorial thing. Mm. I think this might be Chris Walken really understanding yeah. that his one real love connection, his connection in this world is right. Sarah. And he puts all of that feeling right. in her voice, in, in her name. And it's, it's there at the beginning, uh-huh. but it's particularly there at the right. end. You know, post coma. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really remarkable. I'm not sure. I can't remember where in the narrative he shakes Stilson's hand. Well, he shakes him at first, but without any effect. And then when he goes to, there's a rally, and it looks like it's across the street from wherever he's living. Where, he, where he's at, yeah. And he's looking for Sarah. Sarah and <laughs> he's wandering through this crowd, and he kind of gets pushed up into the, right. the line where... And Martin Sheen is Where playing. he's off kissing babies. And Martin Sheen is, okay, so. It's every, mm, is he's the worst. <laughs> he's the worst. There, and I, then he gets worse. <laughs> I had a conversation with a friend of mine a while ago where she was watching, or she had got a copy of The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane with Jodie Foster. And she was horrified at seeing Martin Sheen play a pedophile. Mm. And it's like, well, he's the president. He was such a wonderful... <laughs> yeah, if you've seen The West Wing, this is like getting slapped right. in the fucking face. <laughs> so I'm like, well, when he started, he played... It's a real Trump to muggers, Obama situation. <laughs> right. He plays muggers and pedophiles. That was his early career, was yeah. playing these characters. He can do uh, a person who is and acts totally sane. Right. And then snaps with such alacrity. Yes. That, and it's a, it's that's a hard thing to do yeah. because once you've seen somebody act that loony, mm-hmm. seeing them act normal, you're like, no, it's not real. It's not real. But he does 100% flip back. I always believe the nice guy Sheen, yeah. and then he goes that shit again, right. and I'm like, oh, I've forgotten again. But again, it's one of those things where if you're old enough to remember, you can remember Bruce Dern being a psychopath, you can mm. remember Martin Sheen being a psychopath, and you can remember Meg Ryan being kind of a tramp. But Yeah, I didn't know that career. In the Cut was a return to form, but it totally was. Um, but anyhow, so Martin Sheen is really laying into, I, and at the risk of being He's poli- doing political. the schmaltzy politician right. he, real hard. He black, he blackmails the press to stop talking about him. Mm-hmm. He He's just a nasty piece of work, and he has a really nasty bodyguard. Yes. He slaps people who, around for I, him. for a while, was like, is this bodyguard supposed to be the devil? <laughs> right. Like, is this like an omen situation? What's going on? But no, no. because he turns on him at the end. So he shakes his hand and sees a time in the future when the man is president. And that mm-hmm. is the goal, right? He's right. going to be senator and then he's going to run for president. When th- there's no context given, he just says, it's my legacy and he fucking pushes well, the nuclear button. There's no, we're under attack. Right. There's none of that. It was, I woke up 
God fucking told me that my legacy is to blow something up. We don't know what. And he and he forces a general to press the button to press the button with him. And then so he's nuked somebody because God told him that this was his legacy. Well, the, there's a group of generals or politicians, that and come then he up opens the door, and they're like, "You don't like, have to do it. We We've got ha- plans." And he's like, solution. "And he's like, late. no, it's too late. It's already happened. This is my destiny. This is the destiny of all of you gentlemen." So he's just raving. Yes, but we don't have. There's no context given. Right. Just that this man at some point is going to cause yeah, the death of you, millions. You haven't read the book, right? I don't. I have. But it was a very long time ago. Because I'm wondering if there's... Like, I was 11. King so. has enough time to draw out a context for how crazy this guy is. I don't know. Do you want me to look it up? No, no, no. It's not okay. necessary. I'm just... Yeah, here we're... But that's all we really need to know for this film anyhow. For the purposes yes. of this film, he's just a fruitcake. Right. And um, then... So then... Johnny is, like, talking to the doctor, and he, who's, like, his confidant. Uh-huh. Also still his doctor. And he's like, so, um, apropos of nothing, if right. you could go back in time and kill Hitler, would you? <laughs> Which is, I, I wonder if that question started from here, because that's become I don't know, a maybe. standard, you know, and of course. Yeah, I don't, long. I feel like you couldn't ask that right. question earlier than the 60s. Yeah. So this book was written in 79. I have a feeling that it was in the book as well. The doctor, of course, had fled Mm-hmm. The Holocaust thought his mom was lost to the Holocaust. Uh, the doctor goes back and forth, back and forth, and ends on, "Well, I'm a healer and I love people, so yeah, I'd kill the motherfucker." Mm-hmm. Well, son of a bitch. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm, I'm like motherfucker seems yeah. harsh. It right. probably wasn't motherfucker. It was son of a bitch. Uh, and that's end scene. And right. so Chris Walken writes a letter to Sarah and then goes and hides in a church. Where there's a there's going to be a rally, and he's got a gun, and he goes, he's up in a place that he could definitely be spotted. It's the balcony. <laughs> I just was like, you're just out in it, okay? Uh, falls asleep, wakes up when people start showing up, and Silson comes in, kisses Sarah's baby, and then has Sarah and the baby and her husband come up on the stage with they're him. You're right. They're on the stage. They're on the stage with him. And then Chris Walken stands up and gets ready to shoot. Sarah yells his name, sees him, yells Johnny. Uh, Chris takes a shot, misses. Martin Sheen Uh takes the baby from Sarah and holds it up in front of him. As a body shield. As a body shield. And I'm like, I mean... You don't even have to kill him now. There is somebody taking pictures of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, He backs down. He gets shot. He ends up getting shot twice. Chris Mm -hmm. Walken gets shot twice and does end up dying. Is it by the bodyguard? I don't know. Okay. There are no police, which was another thing. I was like, ooh, a different time. Yeah, it was a completely (laughs) different time. That that was something that you could, you could, you know, take, chalk that up to. I hate that expression. To, yeah, at the time. Although... You were just telling me earlier about Kamala Harris having a microphone taken from her, taken by, from a, her by a white dude, yeah, by a protester or whatever at an event. So it's like, yeah, I guess it's not that far off that stupid things can still happen yeah. at political rallies. Um, and then he ends up dying, but he sees, um, Martin oh, Sheen, oh, Martin Sheen, uh, like 
goes up to him and he touches him and he sees that he is he sees like the cover of a Time magazine and or Johnny something says, and it's yeah. like Stilson's over because it's a picture of him holding, holding a baby. baby up as a shield and then he kills himself. He shoots himself in the head. And Johnny's like, my work is done. And then his death. last moment is with Sarah though as opposed uh, to Stilson. Yep, Sarah embraces him, tells him she loves him. So this is a very kind of tragic, I liked it though. I liked it a great deal. I don't know. What what were your feelings? I liked it. Like I said, I Mm -hmm. felt it was rushed, which I feel like I may be saying a lot as we go through these films because the books are long and the movies are movie length. Right. I almost think that the piece with the serial killer could have been just removed. Okay. Like, I think that might have been a whole season in the TV show. Uh, yeah, but I don't, it's like a f- like a ten minute. I don't remember part the TV show. Uh, to be honest, it's my own prejudice because the actor, what's his you name? You don't like Anthony Michael Hall? I just couldn't take him. seriously. As an adult, I like him. As a kid, he was obnoxious, but as I an just adult, couldn't I like take him seriously. I, I, I don't. I, that's terrible. Well, I'm going to make you watch at least the first and last episodes, so we'll we'll get there in the mm-hmm. 2000s. It'll be next year sometime, so <laughs> no rush. But um, everything took longer, right? And so that's a pacing that I'm more comfortable with. This all felt quick. It felt fast. And I'm sure they took out several, you know, pieces from the book. Uh, but overall, it was good. And Chris Walken was great. His hair was something. But he was really good. And I like walk- watching movies with, like, him and, like, Al Pacino before he just started. Became Al Pacino. Yeah. Being hired right. and required to just be Al Pacino. There's a really great skit on Mad TV uh, involving Al Pacino and Robert De Niro as his wingman going into a Baskin Robbins and trying to order ice cream. And it played into the Al Pacino, uh, the modern Al Pacino stereotype of him just shouting his lines. So many flavors. Like yeah. He's screaming. Ooh, uh, <laughs> right. So, yeah, it was a pretty funny skit. Um, yeah, the film, apparently, the screenplay was worked on by Deborah Hill, who we've run into before. Who that? Uh, she worked on Halloween. Oh, okay. Um, uh, this movie also was pretty highly praised. Uh-huh. Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars. Right. Uh, said it was the best adaptation of things, uh, King's work King. right. to date. And that does include the four-star uh, uh-huh. Shining, because... Right. As an adaptation, The Shining, it's an adaptation, well, it's <laughs> but it's not necessarily it. a uh-huh. good adaptation of the work, but he says that this is the well, best of the half dozen so cinematic adaptations to that date. How do you feel about Bill Murray playing Johnny? Uh, that would have been terrible, and his name, he would never have been able to see... Okay, here's the thing, though. Uh-huh. I have a Murray prejudice. Okay, so like I have an Anthony Michael Hall prejudice. Maybe, you probably have a not prejudice. though. Bill Murray, I don't know if he reminds me of somebody who did something to me as a child or something. He makes me uneasy. Uh-huh. And I don't think it's Bill Murray's fault. I think it's a some sort of link that I have. Uh-huh. Like he reminds me of someone in my life. 
um, I don't care for him ever, pretty much. Uh, although this new Jim Jarmusch mo- movie looks pretty interesting, so I may make an exception. Uh, but I'm going to say nine and a half times out of ten, if you say Bill Murray, I'll be like, nah, somebody else, anybody else, somebody else, please. Right. Um I also, at this point, had he ever done a serious role, or was he? I'm trying to remember. I know point? that he attempted Turning Point by doing a film based on a Somerset Mom novel, of all things. Which is funny because I spent the entire weekend watching su- adaptations of Somerset Mom yeah, short stories, and, I'm, <laughs> and I don't think it was really successful because it's difficult when you have a performer like that who's. Uh, comic persona is kind of deadpan because his standard kind of reaction to things could be seen as funny. He can't do wry now because that could be seen as part of, you know, uh, tipping into his comic persona. So I'm looking at his filmography. Mm-hmm. And that would be the razor's edge of the movie I was talking about. Meatballs, Tarzoon. Is where the but he played Contrast Thompson and where the Buffalo Roam? Yeah, is that a comedic performance? Kind of. I mean, you can't do a small Hunter. Caddyshack, Stripes, Tootsie, mm-hmm. which I didn't even know he was. In he Tootsie. was really good in Tootsie, actually. Um, so that would have been the last thing before this. Okay. Uh, but was he was it a comedic role? Uh, no. No. Okay. And, so and, he had done serious right. things at this point. Um. Yeah, but I'm never gonna be like, and especially. Walkin or Murray? I'm going walking 100% well, of the he time. Also, Cronenberg wanted to cast uh, Nicholas Clay, I guess. Let's I don't see. know who's that. Nicholas is. Campbell. I'm sorry. Nicholas Clay is another. I don't bland know who that actor. is either. He's the guy who played the Castle Rock Killer. Oh, the he one wanted, that played. initially wanted him to play the part. But he was. Uh, oh, did we mention that he was the deputy? I think he was. The, he, yeah, I don't know. He I, I think we said in in in, in passing. passing. Yeah. But uh, he wanted to cast him as well, and instead they went with Christopher Walken, which was a much better choice. I felt, although he does although look very haunted and sort of he, yeah. pale. I wouldn't have hated somebody closer to the age of the person right, in the book. That's true. Um, I mean, if you're gonna have. There is something to, what do I want to say? Uh-huh. I think Chris Walken is great if he had been in a coma for 15 years. Right, not for five years. Yeah. For five years, because he would have been like 28 when he woke up. Mm-hmm. And you still have a lot of life in front of you. If you right. wake up at 40, I don't know, I feel like you'd feel like more of your life was taken from you. And he's a 40-year-old man. Right. So that's what I'm getting from him. So it's misleading. Then it is like, why so old-fashioned at the beginning when you were a 35-year-old man? But no, you weren't. You were a 23-year-old man, and I'm very confused. (laughs) Um, So somebody younger, I think, would have been maybe my only change. Yeah, I can see that. Uh. I do like um, at the very beginning. So he's finishing reading The Raven and then he instructs them to read The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And then he gets to be in Sleepy Hollow later. (laughs) I didn't think of that. That's funny. Um, It didn't even occur to me. Yeah. 
Oh, that's what trivia in on IMDb is for, yo. Okay. <laughs> that's the whole purpose of it. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I think... I think it was good. I'm glad. I know that we're about to um, take a dip, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I'm going to say that at the end of the next one. but um... Right, but I mean, so far, we've been seeing... Stephen King as realized by George Romero and Brian De Palma and David Cronenberg and Stanley mm-hmm. Kubrick. And now it's, Although to be fair, uh, it's a John Carpenter film we're about to watch. Right, okay. So that's better. So So I guess after Christine is the one where we're gonna start getting Let me know. let me let's say next week uh-huh. we're gonna watch Christine, um, nineteen eighty three horror film directed by John Carpenter, um, starring a bunch of people you've never heard of. <laughs> That's not necessarily true. But Harry Dan Stanton's going to be in it, so, you know, it's not nothing. Um, so that's the next one. It's a haunted car film, guys. It's a haunted car film, so, you know. Well, yeah, I, I don't think that the, <laughs> it mattered who started it as long as it's a beautiful car. And from what I remember, it's a beautiful car. Oh, I'm sure. I'm, I hope they didn't skip out on the car. The car's oh, the thing. No, 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 the car's no, no, the no, thing. No. So uh I think the car is it's sort of like watching Sylvester Stallone in a Rambo movie where they're just shot after shot of his pectoral muscles. It's like he spent a lot of money on and time on this, so it's gonna be done well. I believe the same approaches for the car here. So I will say that you can apparently watch this on something called IMDB's Free Dive. Hmm. I don't know that I will, uh, but that is an option for you. And I'll we'll put whatever uh, wherever else you can watch it uh, in the show notes as we normally do. Um, so I think that brings us to the end of this week. Before we go, we want to say hi to a listener who wrote us a beautiful and wonderful letter. Hello, listener. I don't. I'm going to call you BB. Because you did not give me permission to use your name, and so I'm not going to do that. But we got a letter in our Gmail account. That's latecomerspod at gmail.com. And BB has found us via Google Alert when we started talking about Stephen King. So good job, Google. That's awesome. And wanted to uh, give defense of Shelley Duvall's performance of Wendy in The Shining. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, they go ahead and give a very good sort of backup of uh-huh. what she is doing in that film. Mm-hmm. And uh, we hear you. I think that what she is doing is, I, I, like, first of all, I would never blame her for her performance or, or no, my, pro- no, my faults right. with her performance. And I am likely prejudiced. Because I, before I saw the film, I mm-hmm. heard what Kubrick was doing uh, to her, had done to her. Right. And so I'm like a little crossed arms just watching it, uh-huh. like mad about it. And so that's not on her, of course. Um, and also they do say that, um, oh, that the, that from beginning to end, that the performance hangs together as a coherent piece, right. which I would agree with, absolutely. Yes. Um, and, and I may have been slightly cruel about my speaking of her physicality. Uh, I don't think I called her ugly cause I don't think no, she no, is no. ugly. 
Uh, she's not a classic beauty, but BB finds her very beautiful. Um, and, you know, obviously a matter of taste, but... I also think that she's probably downplayed. No one looks particularly attractive in this movie. No, that's true. The most appealing-looking people are the dead ones. She's intended to look like a frazzled wife. Uh-huh. Who's and Jack Nicholson is made to look like a sort of balding, middle-aged, you know, alcoholic, which is what he's playing. Right. So there's no attempt to sort of beautify them at all. In this no, film. that's true. And and they're not they're not going to dress up or or pretty up for each uh-huh. other. And there's no one else. Right. So and it's that's not why I say like, the yes. most appealing or attractive people in the film are dead. The woman in yes. the bathtub is beautiful. Well, the, until, well she uh, until she isn't. <laughs> Um, the characters, the various ghosts that they meet, are all very impeccably dressed and very well mannered, and very well manicured. The bartender, uh, the I forget exactly what his position is in the hotel. Um, the caretaker, the, the previous, right. yeah, uh, he's just a he's like a buster or something right. now. Or Which is like very a, funny because I'd never seen him before, and then saw him in two films since we saw The Shining. That's probably just confirmation bias. You've probably seen him before. Oh, well, I've never <laughs> noticed him before. Maybe is the yeah, best way to put it. And suddenly, it's like, oh, it's it's that guy. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's so he doing? yeah, so we got this awesome letter. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it's our first letter, I think. Mm-hmm. And we appreciate it very much. Yes, very much. Actually, thank you very much. It's always good to hear an, another point of view. Yes. And it, it makes you look through what your statements were and what your feelings were going, okay, there's room for this too. This is very interesting. And so. it's cool to know that people we don't know are listening to yes. this. So hi, everybody we don't know. Let us know you're out there. It's awesome. So thank you for your letter. Um, I'm going to send a thank you as well in actual right. email as well. But I uh, wanted to say that. We forgot, I forgot, and we can't forget this week, to ask you what you want to recommend to our viewers. Oh, no. And they're not viewers, to our listeners. Okay, by the time that you hear this, I will probably have seen Godzilla several times. (laughs) This drops on Thursday, so you don't have that many days left. You never know. (laughs) I don't. You're right. So... I went to go see it with my very tolerant friend, <laughs> Amity. I don't know why you think I don't I like just, kaiju. Well, because I grew up in a family that basically thought, when are you going to grow out of this? And Hi, I, I'm like, not related to I you. Know. So, once again. But it was like uh, the character that Lance Cohen played in um, Salem's Lot. You know, where the dad comes in, when are you going to grow yes, out of this? Yes, when are you going to grow out right. of this? No, I get that. Um, Hi, I wasn't there. Right. Just because I don't have a 45-year-old love love and romance with this character doesn't mean that I don't want to watch big monsters fighting each other. Uh, I always want to watch that, pretty much all of the time. It's like... My all, my constant desire for a sandwich or a burrito. Right. <laughs> the answer is yes. Do you want this? Yes, I do. I want well, kaiju. This film um, has been getting mixed reviews. Roger Ebert's people liked it. Some other people didn't. NPR hated it. Uh, but I sort of went into it expecting that the human drama was not... And everyone seemed to agree that this is a film that makes you stand up and stare at the screen like in awe for most of the film. And it did that, but I did not find the human story to be as negligible as some reviewers found it. I think the entire film works as a whole. 
I it baffles me why mm. this is getting poor reviews. It feels mm. like a hit job. Look, this movie is called Godzilla King of the Monsters. Right, exactly. Wherein Godzilla and some monsters fight each other. Also, Millie Bobby Brown is a star. Right. She's fantastic in this. I get to see um O'Shea Jackson and Bradley Whitford quipping at each other. Vera Farmiga's in it. What the fuck are these critics complaining Zheng about? Zhi. What is happening? Zhengji the... is great. Ken Watanabe is great. So it's like everyone, they're not given a great deal to do because the movie is not called Ken Watanabe, King of the Monsters. Right. All right. It's Godzilla it's fighting like... Ghidorah. This is Godzilla becoming King of the Monsters. So It's Mothra's beautiful. Yeah. Like, what what do you want what from you a movie, movie called movie Godzilla King in, right. of the Monsters? And it's almost as what if do I want? A... I want Godzilla and some monsters to fight. You know what they give me? All of that. And yeah. then Millie Bobby Brown being, I'm telling you, her face. Right. Her face is so good. Yeah. Like, I'm not being gross. Yes, she's a beautiful child. child. Her, the expressiveness of her face yes. on an IMAX screen is heartbreaking. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, the film is really, really good and fun and exciting. And so, and I don't understand a bad review. One Look, of these cases where the, if, if you don't uh, want to watch monsters fighting, then give right. it a miss. The my understanding was from the latest because I'm a, on a lot of Godzilla fan sites. The latest tally is that the number of the uh, Rating for the reviews themselves is about 40-something percent. The rating from the audience was in the high 80s. Yes, because like, the because audience they knew. they knowing what we're yeah. going to see. You know, it's not, there's no snobbery left behind. For but I also feel like critics are not film. doing what I appreciated mm-hmm. Roger Ebert doing, right. which is grading the merits of the film that was right. made. Don't grade the merits of the film you wanted to see. Yes. Grade the merit of the film that was made. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. I understand the, first, the 2014 right. Godzilla... Being rated a little bit poorly. Why? Mm-hmm. There wasn't enough Godzilla in that right. movie for me. And a lot of the Godzilla was on a small screen on my big screen. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? You're cheating me out of my Godzilla. Give me my Godzilla. This movie doesn't do that. They heard those mm-hmm. those criticisms, and they don't do that. Um, do I think that there were a lot of pieces where I was like, more Godzilla right now? Yes. Right. there. Yes. <laughs> yes. Of course. Right. Does that take away from the whole movie for me? It does not. Yeah. Because literally everybody in this movie I would watch do almost anything. Well, the cast is spectacular. What I liked about the film also is we're done watching it. We're sitting in the theater because there's, there's a post credit scene too. Um, and there were just people sitting in the theater talking. If you remember, mm-hmm. they're like just sitting in little groups talking about this, and these were the longtime fans. I was yes. telling Abby earlier that Godzilla fans are like Raider fans; they're really die hard. So yes. it's interesting watching that they were sitting there analyzing the film right after they saw right. it. And what I loved is that, unlike the Star Wars films, maybe, or some of the other films that come out of existing franchises. This film is really made for those fans. There are things that I won't ex- express or tell you right now because there's some really neat twists to the plot where you're like, oh, that harkens back to yes. this. There's musical cues that go back to the original there film. There's I also all sorts do of think that stuff. the way that they animate some of the monsters uh-huh. feels like, and I love you, Ray Harryhausen. Uh-huh. 
like the way that certain things move, I'm yeah. like, that looks like a practical effect. Right. It's it, clearly not a practical yes. effect, but they made it look a little bit like a so practical effect. So you're watching effect. like a, a high-end modern version of stop-motion animation, mm-hmm. the stuff that Harryhausen stopped doing like 30 years ago mm-hmm. before he passed. But the idea is that there's a lot of, and I, I think also for, uh, to me the biggest wet kiss to the fans was... Um, Haru Nakajima's picture at the very end of the yes, film. Yes, because they dedicated it right. to. So it was a it was really enjoyable. I loved it. I will be seeing it again. Yeah, it's, I legitimately don't understand these slow right. reviews. Look, if you're not a person who likes to watch monster movies, right. this one isn't for you. Yeah, that's fine. I and people are complaining. Oh, the people aren't very good. No, you're wrong. Yeah, you're wrong. You just didn't want to see the monster pieces. The people in this movie, Kyle Chandler. Vera Farmiga, <laughs> Millie Bobby Brown, Bradley Whitford, um, Ken Watanabe, Sally Hawkins, Sally Hawkins, Jingji, uh-huh. uh, Jingji, uh-huh. all of these people. I am not exaggerating when I say I would watch them do pretty much anything. Right, and they're not given nothing, right? No, so. And there's some I neat just twist that I won't go into it. that I were just, just like, don't. that was very clever. That was a really clever callback. And there's a lot of stuff in there that if you've been with the series long enough, it's really rewarding to watch it. Yeah. But, I, I just, I yeah. don't understand. Like like I said, if if you hate a monster movie, obviously it's not it. for you. If you love monster but movies. But if you're a critic who hates right. a monster movie, have your colleague give do this one. I almost one. feel like they're resentful that they're having to watch it. You I, know, that's what it feels like. Of, and I'm just like, like uh, I have to watch Godzilla. It's like, yeah. Then don't. Right. Get a buddy to do it because, you, yeah, judge the thing that was made. And the thing that was made is badass. Mm-hmm. It is. The, the scenes with the monsters, now that we're mentioning them, are amazing. It's the scale of what's happening in this film is it's Old Testament. Is it is huge. huge. So yeah, go watch it on a big screen. Get um, enveloped in the noises. It's it's a really fun movie. Now, did you have something you wanted to recommend? So I am going to do a tentative recommendation of the movie we saw today. Okay. Uh, and that movie is Ma. Ma. Um, and I had an interesting conversation with uh, a fellow podcaster mm-hmm. uh, from Macintosh and Mod, uh, who was <laughs> when I said that I was going to go see it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. He was like, "No," and I was mm-hmm. like, "Well, that was a different response than everybody else had, yeah. who were like, oh, I want to see that. Oh, we should go together.'" <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and his take was. I think he saw the trailer right after he saw Green Book. Okay. And um, the 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 taste of black woman cast as horror villain. The monster? What, yes. Okay. Was bad in his mouth. After seeing Green Book, I cannot okay. disagree I, I with that, that particular. Uh, yeah. And I think he's the reason I ended up really digging deep into Green Book and why I did just opted not to see that. Uh-huh. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Now, Octavia Spencer, of course, the black woman in question, uh, was an executive producer on this film. Uh-huh. So I looked... She controlled it. I, I looked around a little bit. Now, she was also in The Help, and that movie mm. is problematic as fuck. So, well, she regrets that one. Uh, she it, does. Later, yeah. You know who directed The Help? Who? The director of this movie. Oh, wow. You know what else is true? What? Her character was written for a white woman. Um, oh, that's interesting. So this movie deals almost not at all with race. 
she is an outsider and was bullied as a child, but in no way is it shown that that was racially motivated. It mm-hmm. was just that she was a quote unquote loser. There's no, there's one racial thing in the mm-hmm. movie. It's something that she does to one of the children, which is harsh. This is something you should warn people about. This is a hard movie. First of all, yes, this movie is an. I'm going to go with hard R. Yeah. Uh, there was a child in the movie, uh, and I wanted to call someone. In our theater, right? Just in like, our theater, who was 10, maybe? Less than that, probably, yeah. It don't. Y'all don't. So, this, this movie is, is rated R, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. This is like a 70s rated R. The characters you know, like in this movie are 16, and that's uh-huh. about as young as you should be to see it. Right. It's not pulling a whole lot of punches. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't... I, I think... The fact that it doesn't deal with race might be a problem in and of itself, uh-huh. but I don't think it digs itself any holes in that. Now, I think there are some pacing issues uh-huh. with it, but Octavia Spencer is so goddamn good in this movie. Yeah. She's just good. Like, just mm-hmm. Octavia Spencer and Isabel Hubert are playing her and what's her name from, oh, The Purse. Is left behind. Ooh, um, Greta. Greta is played by Isabel Hubert. Okay, so Octavia Spencer and Isabel Hubert are playing remarkably similar characters mm-hmm. for different reasons, reasons yeah. and with different motivations. Motivations, but very similar creepy woman characters. Uh-huh. If we have too many more of these, I'm gonna really start feeling like there is a agenda uh-huh. against women. Not that there isn't an agenda against Whoa. women in this country, but but you know what I'm saying. Like, right. But for these two movies, mm-hmm. entertaining. And like I said, Octavia Spencer is so, mm, so I'll go good at this it. far because it has a really good cast of young actors, too. It does. Um, and the plot... Who seem actually young. They right. seem like actual teenagers, the, especially the boys. Right. The plot involves her, this woman who becomes attached to this group of teenagers, and then sees this as a route to popularity. She starts buying them alcohol and then allowing right. them to party at her house. She is an adult woman. She is mother age to them. Yeah. Uh, and then doesn't take kindly when they don't continue. And but then you you find out there's that... There's a lot of motivation there's behind There's background, it, right. right. So, Which a lot of the that stuff is given mm-hmm. away in the commercials, so I'm not going to go over it here. It's a pretty tight horror movie. Right. It doesn't get horror until the last 25 minutes or so. Yeah. There's a lot of suspense. There's a lot of tension up until then. There is. I I do think that, I think the movie could be 15 minutes shorter, Uh probably. The, the, and the flashbacks are, they're handled in an interesting way, Uh but I don't know if they're enough for what she ends up doing. Like, if it's enough motivation. Yeah. Like, okay. show me that she was broken before this terrible thing happens. Mm. I, don't, I don't know. But that's that's fine. I think it's a good performance. Right. Uh, there's so much stuff in the theaters now that it's hard for me to say, right. go to this thing. But, I mean, if you are... If you like what Blumhouse is doing, right. this, is a, okay. this is a worthy so addition to their This their is canon. the way that I would put it. Godzilla is a good choice for a big screen. Yes. Right. This doesn't necessarily Mom does not necessarily have to be seen in a big no, screen. No, that's right. As a matter of fact, it might help if you're watching because if you're watching it on a smaller screen and you can notice a lot of what Octavia Spencer is it, doing with the performance. 
what I was going to bring it up though about her performance, Octavia Spencer, is it reminded me of, and this is very high praise, Anthony Perkins in Psycho, in that here's a monster, but not so much a monster that you don't have moments where you really feel for them. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. There's a couple of scenes in here, which I won't go into because it'll spoil it, where you can read the hurt in her eyes. Yes. And you also get to see something really amazing, which is, as she's one of the actors who can pull it off, you can see them think. Yes. And there's points... What she can do with her eyes is pretty spectacular. Right. You can see them plotting, and the the, the ability that she has... Alice and Janney has a weird, like almost cameo in this right. movie that is wild. <laughs> well, yeah. They're, they're, they're obviously, she is obviously having fun just playing that She's character. having a blast. That was like three days and out. Yeah. And she, yeah, she's having a blast. But Octavia Spencer is amazing. She's really good in this movie. She And Juliette Lewis is also very good in this uh-huh. movie. And, um, and I, I haven't seen her in a while. And I really don't know um, anything about Diana Silver's that's the main right. girl. Yeah. Um, and you almost don't want to like her because she's so pretty. Like, See, oh I God. don't... She, but yeah, I just, you said that. I felt like it's You said really, that right at the beginning. Right, it's really ridiculous for me to watch a film where a girl that pretty walks into a school and goes, nobody's going to like me. It's Honestly? Like, really? I have a I could 100% that. see her being horribly picked on because her right. features are... They're not perfectly symmetrical. Mm-hmm. They're a little exaggerated. And it makes her, she's like stunning to look at, but she's not, like I said, a classical beauty. Well, yeah. And but, I, okay. and teenagers are the fucking well, worst, which I, is, should be the, that is the tagline for this right. movie. Ma, teenagers are the fucking worst. Right. But I, I didn't quite feel that, but again, I haven't been a teenager. For a very long time, and I've never been a girl, so I don't understand how that works. It just sort of felt like, really, this is the girl gets picked on because. And uh, what I do like is the fact that she's almost immediately, despite those feelings, accepted into a larger group, and that felt more realistic to me. But the uh, expectation that somehow she wasn't going to be able to make it—that's like. I honestly, it wouldn't have surprised Mm -hmm. me if she didn't get subsumed into a group because her features. First of all, if you're new and pretty. Current pretty doesn't want you here. Current pretty doesn't want you taking right. my men and my attention. So I could see her being oh, ostracized on been, that. I've never been a teenager or a girl, so I'm not really sure yeah, how well, that it works. It fucking blows on both fronts. So <laughs> um, she's also in Booksmart, which is a movie that we're looking forward mm. to seeing. So, And she was in Glass. I don't even remember that. She was a cheerleading girl, so oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. Um, and then she's going to be in a movie called Eve, uh, which is another Tate Taylor-directed mm-hmm. movie. He's making all of the movies, apparently. And she's sharing, uh, or sh- she's uh, with, or she's starring with Jessica Chastain, the titular Eve. And John Malkovich, Colin Farrell, and Common. Oh, okay. So, That's a weird cast, but okay. Gina Davis and Yoan Gruffin. I would like to watch this movie. And Joan Chen. What is happening? All right. What is this Are movie? you just making things up now? I'm not. It's just like you're just... Jessica Chastain playing an assassin. So we already know that I'm in. <laughs> I'm in for that. So, uh, But that is the, the young lady in this movie. So 
Um, like I said, if you're into mm. horror movies, if you like what Blumhouse has been doing, uh, and I can't fault it, mm-hmm. uh, check it out. Okay, so that brings us to the end. We're watching Christine next week. I don't know. Check out this IMDb thing. I don't know. Drive free. Free drive? I don't know. The internet is weird. Uh, you can email us. Right. We'll read it. Yes, we will. Sometimes <laughs> we'll mention you on the air. At latecomerspod at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at latecomerspod. And our Facebook group is uh, the Latecomers Podcast. You can find us by searching in the search bar. You know how Facebook works, y'all. And I think that's everything. Yep, that's everything. Okay, cool. So we love you very much. We thank you so much for listening. I remind you to take your medicine. And remember... Better late than never. Pew pew pew, it's a long one.